is Disney at Play, and I'm your host, Jeff Kober. We are glad you joined us today. We are uh, celebrating Disney and space. And uh, this is appropriate uh, this time of year because on July 16th, Apollo 11 was launched by a Saturn V rocket from Kennedy Space Center. And with pilot Michael Collins orbiting in the command module Columbia, Commander Neil Armstrong and pilot Buzz Aldrin landed the Apollo, Apollo Lunar Module Eagle on July 20th of 1969 and stepped onto the surface of the moon six hours later on July 21st. So with the 50th anniversary, we just thought it was a perfect opportunity to talk about Disney and space and all of its connections. And there's no way I can host this conversation without bringing in uh, my friend and colleague and um, and uh, great uh, Disney historian. Disney historian, absolutely, the man who invented space. It's Jim Corcus. We're glad to have you here, Jim. Well, Jeff, Jeff thank you so much. Uh, uh, for inviting me. I, I, I look forward to uh, sharing uh, uh, some information with your uh, listeners. And, and you know, the uh, uh, Disney Family Museum has uh, uh, twice invited me out to, uh, uh, to California to talk about uh, Walt and uh, uh, outer space the very first time at, at the uh, uh, request of uh, Diane Disney Miller. Uh, who awesome. uh, again was was very familiar with her father uh, at home, but not as uh, cognizant of things that he did at work. You know, in, including uh, three iconic uh, uh, television shows that literally uh, inspired. Uh, uh, Americans to want to go to uh, uh, the moon and beyond, yeah. and, uh, and and inspired people to to actually uh, uh, become uh, uh, NASA employees. In, in fact, uh, we were talking about the uh, uh, moon landing there, Apollo Eleven, uh, in the uh, uh, command center was uh, Stephen Bales, who was a guidance officer, and he joined up for NASA as because as a kid uh, in the 50s, he had seen these space shows and decided, that's what I want to do, you know? And so, it, in fact, when newspaper reporters uh, interviewed him, he said it, it, was, it was like a Walt Disney show coming to life, <laughs> you know? And, and, and so when people say, uh, oh my gosh, you know, we, we landed on the moon, I, I always like to, to think that you know, Walt Disney himself got there years before that. Yeah. You know, uh, I, when when Walt Disney World opened, someone came up to uh, Walt's brother uh, right. uh, Roy and and said, "Gee, you know, it, 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 it's a shame Walt never got to see this." And Roy looked at him and said, "He did, because Roy knew that that Walt's imagination." was so vivid that if he was given, you know, all the correct information and all of that, he could visualize exactly what the final product uh, would be. And, and I think Walt was given uh, enough information by uh, uh, top scientists in, in the 50s, uh, Werner von Braun and 
Willie Lay and Heinz Faber right. and, and, and others so that Walt could very clearly see going into space, going around the moon, landing on the moon, and going beyond that. You know, uh, so it just took a while for the rest of us to, to sort of catch up. So before we get to all of that, Jim, let's start. Mm-hmm. Let's start with where were you on the day uh, Neil Armstrong uh, walked on the moon? I remember sitting in my, front of my uh, TV set mm-hmm. and uh, and and seeing it. You know, the old uh, the old tubes and the you know it takes took took about you know two minutes to warm up the TV back then. It was all black and white and pretty fuzzy. Yeah, did you have rabbit ears on? The and head? the rabbit ears on top. The whole yeah, you're everybody's you know somebody's always trying to move the rabbit ears to get the best signal from Walter Cronkite and company. So mm-hmm. I remember I remember seeing that very vividly. Uh, that that yeah, morning, yeah, where I, were you? I, I was sitting in a in, in a living room with with my family and. You know, we were watching uh, the, the TV screen. I, I, I think that was true for uh, an awful lot of Americans, but I, I think around the world uh, as well. And and of course, Disneyland was was very smart. They didn't want people to avoid going to Disneyland on that historic day. Yeah. So on the new Tomorrowland uh, uh, stage, they put up this huge, big screen to project. You know, it in real time, and then around the uh, uh, front of the stage, they had smaller monitors too, so that people could, you know, uh, see, you know, man landing on the moon, and then go and uh, uh, pay money to enjoy Disneyland. Yeah, Marty Marty Sklar talks about actually having been there on that day, and uh, said that a lot of guests came just to. Just to see a you know, flight to the moon and see if 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 what uh, Disney had built was was anything like what what it really was like and uh, <laughs> and you know really well, um, well you know uh, uh, Werner von Braun who is at that time uh, director of NASA uh, phoned up Ward Kimball who had directed the uh, uh, Man in Space series space television shows and, and von Braun was a consultant. And so uh, Kimball picked up the phone, and on the other end, Werner von Braun goes, "Ward, they're following our script." Yeah, that is a that is a great great statement. In fact, somebody one of the things Marty Sklar said: the only disappointment um, is that uh, if you'll recall in the man uh, the flight to the moon uh, attraction. Mm-hmm. Now I don't go back as the, before flight to the moon. There was. Uh, a rocket to the moon. Rocket to the moon. I don't recall that attraction. Um, well, and, and, and again, it, it was uh, uh, very similar. You're, you're, you're in that uh, uh, circular auditorium, and, and you've got those uh, uh, on different tiers of seats, and underneath the seats they have uh, air jacks that you know would push you up and then push you down, and... Uh, all of that. Uh, one of the things that was different in Flight to the Moon um, was uh, they th- then showed actually on the moon. Uh, astronauts on the moon. Yeah, so and were, the, and the one comment he made was um, that guests were or that that, that uh, guests were a little disappointed that the astronauts on the moon didn't jump quite as high <laughs> as, the, <laughs> as the astronauts did. Yeah, toss each other around. Absolutely. Disney version, yes. Yes. 
Well, we're gonna we're we're gonna bounce way back if we can, even before the Man in Space series, because I really feel it, 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 it's always good to go back to the beginning to see how things developed. You know, because it, it, things just didn't appear out of thin air. That there's usually an evolution when you when you get to to some project. And and the evolution. Most people don't recall that NASA was actually before it was NASA. NASA, as we know today, it was actually a military operation. Oh, and, well, in, in fact, the whole U.S. Uh, rocketry uh, yes. program was, was designed uh, for weaponry. You know, that, that was one of the things that was uh, uh, discovered. You know, uh, during World War II, is that the only country that had a rocketry program was uh, Germany, Nazi Germany. And so when uh, Germany was defeated, both the Americans and the Russians rushed in to grab as many of the German scientists as they could and as many of the uh, uh, V-2 rockets and, and, and other equipment so that they could start developing their... Uh, uh, program and and uh, again it was designed for military purposes a, a, as opposed to gosh let let's go into outer space and and, and explore you know yeah. that, that was uh, not the case it was like what can we do to to blow other people up and, <laughs> and shoot a rock well, over there to uh, uh, to do that you, you know Bern von Braun's um, uh, autobiography was called I Aim for the Stars and uh, comedian Mort Saul in the 1950s said yes but the subtitle should be but sometimes I hit London <laughs> that was and, it and, was and, controversial and, and, and so Braun was, was, was really you know a, a, an important uh, a person in, in developing the American uh, uh, space program, but but again, he was a Nazi. He was an SS officer, and so he was uh, a he was a controversial had, choice. Had to do what was called Operation Paperclip uh, to get him into the United States because uh, no Nazis were allowed to come into the United States. But uh, oftentimes on their uh, uh, forms, they would paperclip a, a little thing that said, "We need this guy." And, yeah. and so, you know, it's it's like, uh, yes, he works for the Nazis, but he really wasn't a Nazi, but everybody had to work for the Nazis, and, you know, and... Um, but it so was it was, was controversial at the it, time. It was controversial, but uh, Von Braun and his uh, rocketry uh, uh, team were brought over to uh, uh, White Sands in New Mexico, which, believe it or not was not that far from Roswell. And it's about that same time period as the Roswell incident. But I, I um, believe he was one of the first to find the Ark of the Covenant in that warehouse. Was that <laughs> was that your was not understanding? One of the first to find the Ark of the Covenant. No, maybe not. But well, he was one of the first who were brought over to the Roswell crash site. Mm. Yeah. And and uh, you know, uh, to, to take a look at the some stuff there so let me back uh, up okay. let me back up for a moment if I can because I think mm -hmm. I think an important aspect of this um, in the wake of World War II markets were closed getting uh, uh, profits out of Europe became an impossibility Walt 
uh, artists went to war. Um, yes, the they, studio they, they were either drafted or they volunteered. Yeah. Yes. The studio really had to think differently about its work and obviously got involved with doing army training films. In fact, yes, because the day after uh, uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, the army took over the Disney yes. studios. Even, yeah, and, and Disney, Walt couldn't get on and property if he didn't have a... those sound stages, and so they were using those for... Uh, uh, repair work for anti-aircraft guns because again it, it, the sound stage is, is blacked out yeah, you know with no windows uh, and, or, that. Yeah. And, and so Walt was then faced with that uh, uh, situation of this could be the end of the Disney studio so yeah when, and, and interestingly to make arrangements of look why don't you let me keep some of my animators here and, and I'll produce uh, training films you know, for the military, and I will do them at cost. So he only charged what the production cost was, not the overhead for keeping the studio open. And uh, so by 1943, 94% of the footage that was produced by uh, the Disney studio was under government contract uh, for the Navy, for the Army, for the Signal Corps, for for all of these... uh, different places and then when the Disney studio came out uh, of the war um, uh, uh, 45 basically they were over a million dollars in debt Yeah. and and so you would think oh what a horrible businessman but actually Walt was a great businessman because he was able to keep the studio running he was able to provide work for uh, you know uh, his, his employees, he was able to keep the Disney name, you know, out there. And more importantly, by doing those training films, he was able to experiment uh, with different ways of communicating information so that when he came out uh, uh, of uh, the war years, um, he was actually uh, producing uh, educational films for for companies like General Motors and Johnson right. and Johnson and right. the, uh, well, you know and those all of those and, and so but he'd gotten that training by being able to do you know all of those uh, training which again were top secret yeah no and one we, of we those one of those projects Jim and, and things like that from from any of those films because the military came in and took everything took the scripts took the score the storyboards took the artwork you know everything in fact uh, Harry Title who was a producer yeah at, at the Disney studio tried to go and see one of the Navy films because Walt wanted to see what the reaction was you know from the uh, enlisted men who were going to be watching these and Title was denied being able to go see the film because it was considered and, and Title says we worked on this I, <laughs> I, I was in there every day Well, you know, there one of the one of the series was fighter pilot training, and um, Carl Nader tells the story that Butch O'Hare was actually Butch O'Hare of O'Hare Airport um, was in charge of of uh, many of those fighter pilot training projects, and Carl asked, "Were they effective?" And O'Hare said, "Well, all I know, Carl, is that ever since we've been using the training film with our new pilots." 
they're not missing the targets with uh, their their hit in practice. And so for, for Nader, he thought that was a, a tremendous um, compliment to the training films that they were developing. And, and it, it, not only, it not only led Walt to do these training films, it led him to do a full-length animated film that, you know, most Disney fans will say, I've seen every single Disney full-length animated feature. Well, the question I, I usually then ask is, so what did you think about Victory Through Air Power? Um, which, and, they, and they usually go, what? what yeah, exactly. Uh, he had, Walt had read, uh, I believe, a book that Alexander de Saversky had written about... about Yes, um, and and thought that really the answer to winning the war was through long range bombing, mm-hmm. and um, and that was that was a part. Walt felt so strongly about that that he put his own money into that film. Yeah. Did not. Yeah, I think it. I, yeah, I don't think it got much. I barely broke even at best. No, it um, didn't break even at all. Uh, lost uh, money, but but Roy said, uh, Roy Disney said, you know, we needed to, to do that. And even then, this shows you what a risk taker Walt was. Yeah, uh, yeah, and a patriot, and a patriot to make that film because the Navy's philosophy was battleships will win the war. Mm. So we need more money for battleships. We shouldn't be messing around with these. Uh, uh, airplanes, but Winston Churchill saw victory through air power. Yes, asked, asked, took it to the Malta uh, 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 conference to show to uh, Franklin FDR Roosevelt and all of that. Yeah, asked him. You can imagine FDR being asked by Churchill if he'd seen Disney's film, and yes. and so. And so when he said he hadn't, a print was rushed to Quebec where the conference was being held, and they watched it twice, and then later Roosevelt asked uh, that it be screened by his Joint Chiefs of Staff. Well, it's only some speculation. There are historians who feel that film may have very well influenced the air strategy that was eventually used on D-Day. Yeah, it literally changed the war. And, and, and again, it shows how effective Walt was as a storyteller, you know, in, in terms of, you know, oh my gosh, you know, how can, uh, uh, and it, because again, Walt also had a tendency to, to use humor, and, and you'll see that yes. in the opening animated segment of um, uh, Victory Through Air Power, where they're going through the history of aviation, you know, and, yes. and, and so many of the missteps, and in fact, that was made in uh, uh, the 40s, and it was so strong that uh, parts of that uh, film were still uh, later used for a uh, a Disney television show, uh, Man in Flight, mm-hmm. and, and also as a uh, pre-show for the um, uh, uh, 360 uh, uh, film at uh, at Disneyland when when you had. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an airline, uh, you know, Delta and all. Oh, they, yes, they yes, yes. They, they grab pieces of that. Yeah. You're, you're using some of this animation from, and, and, that, and that was the important thing, too, is that live action dates. You know, if, if you take a look at some of the live action educational films, you know, uh, people are not paying attention to the message. They're paying attention to the fashions or the 
or the hairstyle or things like that. Whereas animation had a tendency to be timeless, animation also had a tendency to be um, uh, funny. And the military hated that <laughs> in the training films until they saw that they the kept their people training awake. films were more effective because when somebody is laughing, uh, actually a lot of their defenses are down, and so they're more open to receiving and retaining information. And if they're laughing, they have more of a tendency to want to see that film again. And, and, uh, and Jim wasn't that... instinctively knew this type of stuff. Yeah, Jim, that was really the premise behind the, the whole Gremlin uh, project, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Which you've written a book on. Um, yes. I think, I think you're the only one who's really done a serious treatise on, on that whole thing. Um, so you see this flow of information, educational films, even Walt then kind of gets into the true life, which is a whole other chapter in itself. So we kind of evolve into the 1950s. We get into the Disneyland uh, project with ABC. Walt's brilliance on that is that he, he saw it as an opportunity to, to really uh, put focus well, on the four job. different it's lands. With his theme park, so that Disneyland the park and Disneyland the TV show would be the same, which is why the Disneyland TV show, and it was called Disneyland yeah. as the TV show. People now, I, I think of a certain generation, think of it as the wonderful world of color or the, you know, uh, whatever, uh, but uh, when it first started out, it was called Disneyland when it yeah. was on ABC because it was to promote the the park. It came out about a year before the park did, and so um, the best PR ever for Disneyland. Show, he divided it up the sections each week the same way as the sections of the park. So, so you'd have the True Life for Adventureland. You'd have the cartoons for Fantasyland. You had the absolutely. incredible Davy Crockett and other uh, cowboy kind of. Things for and then because, because again it, it, for the Frontierland thing it's all live action so you can film it and there's so many westerns already being yeah. filmed so sets and actors and costumes and all this were available. So you Jim only had one problem. Right? What's, yeah, the what's what are we gonna do for Tomorrowland now? Now Charles Charles shows tells a story about a storyboard meeting in which they're trying to figure out what to do for Tomorrowland. Do you? Um, and um, I I don't know if you recall that story but um, they were apparently discussing the history of the wheel uh, as a possible topic for the Tomorrowland segment Mm -hmm. and shows just opens his mouth as apparently only he could and said that this this is a lousy idea for a Tomorrowland show and um and you know the invention of the wheel yeah, is yesterday's story. Topics like mathematics and uh, yeah. uh, the history of flight again and uh, things like that. It, it really wasn't anything that was tomorrowish. Yeah. So, but but he apparently happened to have a copy of Life magazine, and he holds that in the air and says, "Look, this the story is about space. It's about tra- you know space travel." And, 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 and Charles shows was misremembering because, because the articles about space weren't in Life magazine. They were in a magazine called Colliers, uh, and, and there were and, and there were uh, about a half dozen issues that were devoted to that. And in fact, it was not Charles shows who brought out the magazine.
magazine. It was Roy Kimball. Well, so it's interesting, yeah, where that story originates. Not only in space, but in UFOs. They've been following this series because uh, Collier's had a uh, uh, a monthly... Um, series on it. Uh, uh, what do I want to say? Uh, uh, a subscription base of three to four million people. And so people like Werner von Braun, Willie Lay, Heinz Haber, all of these others were using this as a... Um, well, they were featuring. A, a they were featuring Werner von... In, we should be going to space. Yeah, they were featuring Werner von Braun in the in the article, weren't they? I, I thought they had actually shown a space rocket designed by Braun. And, yeah, so uh, he, he, he'd come up with the four-stage four rocket, and, and in fact, with a um, sort of a, a, a delta wing uh, plane on the top, which later, you know, becomes the space shuttle. Because Braun's feeling was, yes, you shoot this thing up, and then... You know, instead of just crashing it back down, it should be able to, you know, glide back down and be reusable uh, type thing. And, and also, you know, uh, Von Braun comes up with this idea of uh, a, a space station and you build the space station in space. You use the rockets to, to fly up parts and then in space, you know, you, you build all of these things. And again, the whole premise of these articles is with the technology that we have today, you know, we can do this. Now, also, you have to realize that this, this is the time here. Von Braun and these others are, are uh, tied to the Army's program. The Navy has an entirely different <laughs> rocketry program where they're working on putting mm. a, a Vanguard satellite. Yes into orbit and and it really wasn't until suddenly the russians set up sputnik that everybody started to get scared that oh my gosh and and the russians did this in 57 um oh my gosh the russians have a have this grapefruit size uh, satellite that, that's up and people were going out in their front lawns and trying to look up into the sky figuring they could see this and, and then a month later, they send up uh, a, a Sputnik with a, a dog in it, the Mutnik. And, and you know, and, and so Vanguard keeps blowing up, you know, on the launching pads. And so it was then that the space program gets shifted to Von Braun. You know, and Von Braun says... We will get a, a satellite up within the next 90 days, and that's when Explorer 1 went up. And uh, you see, because Eisenhower was president, and Eisenhower didn't like Von Braun, because Von Braun was a Nazi. You know? So, so let's, so back at, let's back up for a moment, sure. because what we do know is that, is that Ward Kimball was assigned to do this. And right. he's, Ward, Ward he is Walt's gag man. He's fascinated with outer space, especially UFOs. In fact, he had he hosted um, uh, 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 parties at his house where he invited in, you know, people from Caltech and, and, and all of this to talk about, you know, outer space. And he was the one who came up with the magazines and, and showed Walt. And so Walt said, well, this guy seems to know what he's doing. 
<laughs> and he's interested about this. Well, and he, he seems to he seems to give Ward. I mean, some people said you know they basically he basically gave Ward a, a blank check to go. You know, create the, these the thing was, yeah, after a pitch meeting uh, in uh, 1954, where there was mm-hmm. only going to be one show, it was called Rockets in Space. Right. And and uh, so. Kimball comes in and he brings in Charles Shows, he brings in Bill Bush, all these others, and they pitch Walt all these ideas that they have. And Walt says, You got enough here for two shows, and what we'll do is we'll do two shows and I'll put them together as a feature and release them, you know, in Europe. And as he was leaving the room, there was a notepad and he ripped off a, a sheet of it and gave it. Uh, uh, to Ward and said, write your own check. Exactly. And, and Ward said he never, ever did that and never, ever did it again. Harry, it but, was... But he knew that money had to be invested in this and that he had to be given freedom to, to explore all of this. Harry, Harry Title said that his, that his uh, eyes just dropped out of his head when he heard Walt yes. say that. Yes. And, now, but these, but, and again, Title Title was a producer at the studio, yeah. and also one that Walt was constantly beating over the head of, you know, we've got to keep things within budget, and what can we do to cut back, and you know, all of that. Yeah. So it is so quite taken uh, by surprise, and so of course, Kimball's first move is let me contact these guys who are writing for. Uh, uh, Collier. So he brings in Willie Lay, he brings in Von Braun, he brings in uh, Heinz Haber, you know, to, to yep. start with, and these guys just start pitching all of this information, and Walt thinks this is great, because uh, he learned from all of those uh, training films, and then later the educational films. You mentioned Carl Nader. Carl Nader was involved with the, educational the training film. films, but yeah. he, he later became the head of uh, Walt Disney Educational Media. Yes. You know, and so um, Walt felt, you know, this is going to be the perfect balance. We're, we're going to get the the true facts, but my team can make those entertaining. My team can make those accessible. Isn't that the you brilliance? Know? Isn't that the brilliance of Ward Kimball? That that with these very left brain analytical mathematical thinking gentlemen who who are putting together rockets, you bring in Ward Kimball to be able to tell that story and make it entertaining uh, as a television show that really right. persuades. And I, if you may, if I may, um, yeah. Well, well, Ward told me one time. He says we had to make it entertaining because we didn't want people to turn the channel and watch Liberace playing his piano. <laughs> Competition with Liberace. Why oh, those were the days. It's according to. I wonder if there's anybody of a certain generation who even knows who yeah. Liberace is. Yeah, that's so. how, that's how, we'll say that for another podcast. I want to just read if you if you'll spare me. Scholar Bangs of the Los Angeles Herald wrote after when these came out. Quote: Walt Disney may be America's quote unquote secret weapon for the conquest of space. Apparently, and quite by accident, he has discovered the trigger that may blast loose his country's financial resources and place the stars and stripes of the United States aboard the first inhabited Earth satellite. Disney's immediate achievement, with the aid of triumvirate of space authorities, is the suggestion that space travel is no longer a wild dream 
that it is so near that we can practically feel the Earth tremble under the rocket blast of Dr. Von Braun's spaceship. Man in Space is believable, and Disney has close to 100 million Americans believing. Half of the voting population of the U.S. has probably reached two impressive conclusions. Quote, it can be done, and quote again, let's get on with it. And, 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 and let me just... That was exactly it. America did not have a space program, let alone a space program plan. But here's, here's Walt Disney who comes out and says, look, this is how it could all work. Yeah, makes it so it plausible by paying attention to detail, which Walt was just so great, and, and, his, and his team, of course, um, was so great. But by paying attention to the details, it became plausible. You know, the impossible, the plausible impossible really becomes possible. Um, well, see, you see, Walt concentrated, and in fact, even that first show, Man in Space, he, he introduced it as saying, this is our first science factual, mm-hmm. you know, episode from, from Tomorrowland with, with facts. Because on TV, you're getting all of that space fantasy. You're getting Tom Corbett, you know, space cadet, and... Uh, space Patrol and, and, and all of these, yeah. and, and so you have all of those space opera uh, uh, type things of you know uh, all of these captains and, and commanders who are battling you know strange looking creatures from outer space, and you know uh, literally instead of cowboys and Indians, you've got spacemen and aliens, yeah. you know, uh, doing this, and and it. And it it was very much like a Flash Gordon, very much like a Buck Rogers, you know. It, it, it's a fantasy rather than, yes, this could actually happen. You know, and, and so you have a consultant like uh, Willie uh, Lay, who just mm-hmm. a few years earlier had written the book uh, uh, Conquest of Space, which was a bestseller in, in terms of, yes, this is how a rocket would work, you know, and this is how a rocket would work going to the moon, you know? Um, so basically when Walt uh, released uh, the first of the, the three uh, uh, Tomorrowland TV episodes, Man in Space, um, well, he, President. he's basing it on, it, 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 look, these, this is the math. The math works out. These are the facts. It, it's not just that we're saying, oh, yes, this would be wonderful. To, you know, you have Werner Von Braun saying, this is how something would be fueled. You, you wouldn't bring in trucks with, with uh, fuel tanks to fuel the rocket. There would be under underground tanks, you know, and you would fill up the tanks, and from those tanks, they would, you know, uh, fuel the rocket. And so the things that we take for granted uh, today, they all had to come, uh, you know, from somewhere. Yeah. You know, and, and, and again, a, a lot of those predictions space experts made and that and that Walt, you know, showed in his shows were very, very conservative because uh, people didn't know, you know, what's going to happen when you, you send a man out in space, you know, or are our gamma rays going to come through, you know, the hull of the spaceship and, and you know, uh, will man be able to adapt to weightlessness or is that going to, you know, do something to his insides and, and the whole bit. And so there was a lot of uh, 
uh, unknowns, a lot of variables. But but again, well, the uh, the premise of the show, especially the first two, the third third uh, Mars and Beyond, Ward Kimball plays a lot with Martians there. But but the first well, and, two, and, 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 and again, that, that's fantasy. The, the, yeah. the first show is basically this is the the history of rocketry. This is how we get a rocket in the air. Make a rocket. Yeah. The second one is really how do we get a man on the moon? Launching the rocket. Yeah. The the second one, Man in the Moon, which was was later retitled Tomorrow the Moon, is about going into outer space, building a space station, and then going around the moon. You know? And then the third one was well, once you've gotten to the moon, how do you get beyond it? it? Is you go to Mars because that's the uh, 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 place that is, seems to be most similar uh, to Earth in terms of the, the possibility of, of life or of uh, uh, Earth people surviving there, you know, in, in some ways. And so, yeah, uh, Ward, since there's no live action stock footage that you can use of rockets or anything like that, a lot of it has to be animation, and a lot of it just has to be the speculative. You know, at, at, at that particular point, people thought, yes, there are canals on Mars, and those canals are, are filled with, with fluid, you know? Maybe there's life that exists on Mars, you know? Well, we do know this. It made such an impression that President Dwight e. Eisenhower um, was himself... So, um, so impressed with it, with the, with the first installment well, of the series, he, he, he reached he, out he to Walt. He was certainly impressed enough by the reaction from the general public yeah, to but request he, to be able to see a copy. Well, not only see it, but he wanted it also shown to officials at the Pentagon. He, right. wanted, he wanted them to see it. And it wasn't long after these films kind of made their way that, you know, we, you know, Von Braun and the, uh, and the others kind of, you know, moved on to NASA. Uh, or what eventually became NASA. And uh, and so, now meanwhile, Walt has to kind of create the reality at Disneyland. That concludes our podcast for today. We hope you've enjoyed our celebration of Disney and space. This has been part one. Join us on the day that uh, the lunar module landed on the moon for part two of our podcast where we talk about Disney and space and move out into the parks and so many other areas where Disney celebrates space. Uh, while you're there, please check out our other podcasts, many of which are Disney at Work podcasts, where we not just discuss all things Disney, but we actually make connections back to your own business organization. Know that we not only provide a show notes page for each podcast, but you'll find photos, videos, and other links while you're there. And while you're there, be sure to access Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, a complete guide. That guide includes a unique interactive map detailing where everything is in this new land. Details showcasing food and beverage, shopping experiences and entertainment, a look, a thorough look at Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, a cute exit outline of the new Rise of the Resistance attraction, insights for how to make your experience work when you're either visiting Disneyland or Disney's Hollywood Studios, 
an overview of the new Star Wars Hotel coming to Hollywood Studios, and over 100 photos, drawings, and videos showcasing this newest Disney experience. This guide is available when you subscribe to our Disney at Play and Disney at Work website. When you do so, uh, you'll be subscribed to our drawing to win a free Rex droid. That drawing will be taking place on the day Galaxy's Edge opens at Disney's Hollywood Studios. So be sure to subscribe between now and then. If you like our podcast, please subscribe, like us, and share with others. Our Disney podcasts are unique, uh, not, not only because we provide content to fans who love Disney, but we offer, through Disney at Work, smart ways that you can apply these same ideas back to your workplace. Why not create a little Disney magic in your job? Let Disney at Work show you how. When you visit Disney at Work, you may also want to check out my newest book, Disney Leadership and You, which offers leadership insights from scores of in individuals who have led Disney over the years. It complements my other sites, Performance Journeys, and WorldClassBenchmarking.com, where I offer training and development solutions to companies big and small. You want a keynote speaker? You want somebody to come and talk about Disney best and business practices in your organization? Hey, reach out to us. You'll find access to so many ideas at DisneyAtWork.com and at those other websites. We're a young website, but we bring decades of insights from Disney. If you like the content we're bringing to you, please subscribe, like us, and share with others on social media such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Let us know, uh, let others know, so that they can benefit as well. Well, that concludes this podcast of uh, Disney and Space Part 1. Thanks for joining us. Please join us next week when we do Part 2. And remember, whether it's work or play, always Keep finding the magic.